Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about the story of our favorite pieces of media. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Joe Perez, and with me this week, as always, is the stupendous Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm being stupendous. <laughs> so normally we'd be uh, doing this whole thing where we'd be answering your questions, but... Uh, and don't get me wrong, we want your questions, and you can go ahead and send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com and specify what show they're for. If it's for Lore Watch and you want us to cover a particular topic or comic book, a book, a movie, something that is uh, storyful, uh, let us know. Uh, you can also hit us up on our Patreon Q and Podcast Questions channel as well as our Q and Podcast Questions channel. Uh, today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Matt actually came to me with an idea for this week, and I thought it was a good idea. Matt, what was your idea this week? Well, I was watching the Warcraft movie again, because I do that from time to time, because I don't, I don't hate the movie. Um, but it got me thinking about adaptation and about how trying to bring a story from one medium to another can change the way the story is presented, sometimes necessarily. Um, I think the problem with the Warcraft movie is partially that Duncan Jones really likes Warcraft. Uh, and that you might be like, what, why would someone liking something be bad for an adaptation? And the problem is, is that I think he liked it enough that he didn't want to cut out stuff. Now there's stuff cut out from the Warcraft movie. It is definitely not the story of Warcraft as we got it because we got it across multiple games. And in this one movie, he's attempting to tell the story of like at least the first game and then part of the second game. You know, he's he's trying to get all that out there. And it is not an easy fit. No, not at all. And it's it's what got me interested in the topic was thinking about that and thinking about like um like so like if you co- if you covered for like say movie franchises, how come the like the Harry Potter books, you know, there's reasons I don't want to discuss discuss them, including the fact that I don't care about them. But the there were multiple movies made of those books. They were very successful. One of the like near the end they started making each book into two movies because the books are enormous. Like as, as she wrote them, they got bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite miniseries that adapted a Stephen King story was the stand miniseries, but it, it had to be, a, it had to be a miniseries. Um, and if you look at the movie adaptation of the shining versus the, the, the TV series adaptation of the shining, I think the movie series has significant, the movie has some significant flaws, but it's a better adaptation even though it takes more liberties with the original story because they understood. I mean, I don't know. You, you can say a lot uh, about, um, Oh, bloody heck. I can't remember his name, but the director of, uh, he was the director of 2001. He did directed full metal jacket and he directed this. Kubrick. Uh, thank you. Stanley Kubrick brain could, was kept trying to say Coppola. I'm like, I know it's not Coppola. Um, but yeah, like if you look at how he adapted it, you could tell sometimes you don't, it's it's not about what you like about the story. It's about what can I present in this media? Like, what can I get across in the amount of time I've got? Um, another example that I think is pretty important to this discussion, and one that's kind of somewhat relevant to uh, what we're talking about, is the way that we've seen Diablo movies like shorts and the Overwatch shorts versus the actual gameplay. Like, Overwatch doesn't really have a lot of gameplay in the playing of the, sh- the game. There's there's a that actually has gameplay in the gameplay man. It doesn't have a lot of storytelling. Story in it the has gameplay, so, yeah. Yeah, it's got some environmental storytelling, but not a lot. So really, if you want to know what the story of Overwatch is, you're better off watching the shorts. Um, that tends to give you more of the story information, and they tend to pack a lot into those things. 
Mm-hmm. So that's 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 the kind of thing I was thinking about. Um, another example might be the fact that we've got like you, when you talk about expanded universe stuff, you start getting like you know what counts as canon and all that. But that's that might be a sub thing to it. Yeah, and I mean the, there's something to it too because like the the art of and it, it is an art of translating one media into another is is always tricky because especially with like let's say books a lot of books or comic books are products of the time period and when they're written and so by the time they're converted into a tv show or a movie the sensibilities of society or just how it would be received can oftentimes change uh watchmen is a really good example of that both the television series and the movie versus the comic books uh the boys is another example uh where it is a very like visceral comic that was an anti golden age uh, comic that now has turned into uh, sort of the antithesis of to the Marvel universe uh, of movies that have released uh, over the series of what fifteen years now ten years it's a long time yeah. um, but there's a special art to it and sometimes it does it better than others and sometimes it will fall short of whatever the goal is um, there is a famous joke. Uh, about director and uh, screenwriter Uwe Boll and everything that he touched that had to do with anything video game related being brought into uh, the TV or movie realm and how there was just an excessive failure to do it properly. So I think maybe we should talk about some of the best examples of some of the translations from one media to another. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's a good place to start? I mean, we can give it a shot. I mean, everyone's definition of best is going to be someone else's definition of, oh, oh God. It is 100% like, friends, subjective. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I'm going to use one as an example that I did not like. Like, I didn't like this show, but I thought it was a it was almost note perfect as an adaptation. Uh, and that's Moon Knight. Mm, mm-hmm. Moon Knight, I think, is almost too good at, at, at taking the, the like... 40 year history of the character because keep in mind moon knight's been around since the like like late 70s and he's he's changed yeah. a lot in that time period too yeah and he's changed a lot a lot of different writers have gone in completely different directions with him warren ellis infamously did a completely whacked out uh moon knight run where he introduced the character of mr i was it like mr mr knight yeah mr, mr. mr. Knight. knight who's still around by the way yeah still around it is is actually even in the the show yep if you watch the moon knight series they actually, it's like they adapt almost everything. They don't have him fight a werewolf. Not yet. Yeah. But everything else, it like, it brings in like little pieces of the, the, you know, decades of this character popping up um, and how it, it can go from typical street level and, you know, stories that are dealing with mental illness and insanity and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that to, you know, literal Egyptian gods battling it out. All of that is part of the Moon Knight, for lack of a better word, canon. And they did an amazing job of working it all in. But as a result, I couldn't keep up with it. Like, I was watching it, and I'm like, you know, this show needed twice as many episodes. Agreed. It needed to breathe more than it does. But as an adaptation, it manages to both be note perfect in that it is absolutely Moon Knight. Like, you, you will recognize him as Moon Knight. It's not like when they did the... They've done stuff in TV and movies where, you know, the character is basically not even the character mm-hmm. or like um, the Black Widow movie with with Taskmaster. That's not Taskmaster. That is nothing like Taskmaster. All they did was keep the name. Yep. That character is not Taskmaster. Um, but this was that's Moon Knight. That is absolutely recognizable. Stephen Grant. Uh, 
is yeah i can't remember mark's last name specter mark, mark specter yeah stephen gray at mark specter that damn perfect um um the acting was good the this it's just it felt like it needed more more time to breathe in my opinion but they they were aware of everything and even the stuff they couldn't give you a lot of they gave you just enough to know it was there uh, especially the end of the series, I feel like is is a really good example of Oscar Isaac's bringing forth the the, the complicated nature of the character. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I do think there's a lot to like about Moon Knight, but it wasn't one of my favorite shows. Yeah, if we're gonna go that route, like I can definitely sit here and talk about uh, Moon Knight and how it was a good adaptation. Um, I will counter with what I think is probably a better adaptation, and I might get a lot of flack for this. Um, but comparing to the comics and the video games that they've appeared in, uh, I would actually think that I would like to say that Ms. Marvel as a TV show is probably one of the best adaptations of the character and story that I've seen Marvel do in a very long time, probably since the original Iron Man. Movie. And it's because they they reinvented the character just enough to keep it relevant. Uh, Kamala Khan was always fantastic in the comics but her origin shifted between the comics and the video games particularly if you played uh the square enix uh avengers game which wasn't as bad as everybody said it was and if you have an opportunity to play it or if you have a game pass i highly recommend it um but tying it in the way they did with what's going on in the universe makes more sense altering her powers the way they did makes more sense at least in my opinion I thought it was really well done and really well executed and brought it up to the current generation of viewers that are watching it. At no point during that did I did I look at that character and say, that's not Kamala. That's not Miss Marvel. It had all the all the hallmarks of the character that have been established, but it took all the rough edges away. It's very similar to how I feel uh, with Miles Morales and recent portrayals, because he's another character that people just kind of accept uh, as a Spider-Man now as one of many Spider-Man, uh, but it was always his origins in the comics and the story that evolved over the course of years. Cause it has been a long time now, even for him, um, you know, not quite the, the depth that Peter had as far as like length of time, but like still a decade is a long time. Uh, I think maybe 15, 20 years at this point, it's been a while. It's been I'm gonna say it's long. older than a decade at this point. Cause he took over when they, they killed the ultimate version of Peter Parker. So he's been around for quite a bit. Yeah. And I want to say it was like early, early two thousands. So almost two decades, his character has evolved and his portrayal has gotten more polished. So you get to the point where from the comic books to into the Spider-Verse, you have what I think is distilled down the best representation of that character. 2011. Thank you. That's the first appearance is 2011, wow, which it's is only been much, 11 years. That's much more yeah, recent than I thought. I, I thought it was more like 2008, 2007. So, yeah, but those are really good examples. Hey, can I, can Sorry. I say I was, something though here? Cause yeah. I wanted to actually say something when talking about this, please to my mind, the thing about miles Morales was I, I didn't like miles Morales when he came out. Uh, and I didn't like him because they, they had to kill Peter Parker to have him exist. And I always felt like, you know, I, I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like when they do stories where they kill superheroes. I just, I, it's something that bugs me. Um, but I think that the, the, Spider-Man video game. The I just want to say 2018, maybe 2017, whichever the most recent Sony one was. 18. Yeah. Did something that I think is the better thing to do with Miles in that he just exists. Mm-hmm. He's just there. Did At you the read uh, did you read Spider-Man Life Story? Yeah, absolutely. 
that's another good example of using Miles. I don't, I don't like the whole thing where Dr. Octopus possesses him, uh, but I did think, yeah, he's he is the logical successor, you know? Peter doesn't have a successor, and it makes sense for Miles to be that character. Not necessarily a successor in the, in the sense that he will replace you, but that he literally comes the, after you. He's the succeeds. next generation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I liked when they have them both exist. I think, oddly enough, Bendis understood this. I think so, too. Because when he when he did the Spider-Men stories, did you read those? You must have read those. Of course. Yeah. Um, I, When he had the Peter Parker from 616 come to the Ultimate Universe and, and had them meet, he the interaction was good. Like, they, they had a, a solid interaction between them. I think the biggest mistake they ever made with that was uh, killing off Peter to put Miles in. Oddly enough, though, it works in the best film adaptation of Miles, which I want to let you talk about because I know you have a lot to say about it. But I think it's fair to say that this is one of the best adaptations of any comic book story to film. I would agree. And it's for a lot of reasons, right? There are a lot of characters and a lot of complications in Into the Spider-Verse. And when people ask me what the best uh, adaptation from one source of media to another is, it is my gold standard. And the reason I say that is because of the complicated nature of the characters, because of being able to accommodate the rich history of it, as Matt's alluding to, one of the opening segments of this particular storyline is Miles's universe's Peter dies. Um, he's there when it happens. He watches him die. He watches him be revealed, his secret identity exposed to the kingpin and therefore the rest of the world. Um, he gets to experience all of this and experience the motions of grief and the weight of the, the moment that they shared where Peter sees miles and they both go, you're just like me to each other. This moment of recognition, this and the, the weight of the mantle essentially that gets passed down to him in that moment. And then they do what I don't think a lot of people expected, which you expect the multiverse. Sure. But then they brought in Peter B. Parker, another universe's Peter, that his life is just falling apart, but he's still trying to do his best. Uh, maybe not at first, because, again, his life is falling apart and he's gotten a little selfish with his time. Uh, but he's trying to mentor this young kid and get him on his feet. And at the same time, you have Gwen, who in another universe has become that universe's spider person. Gripping, coming to this is after she's come to grips with her identity. After a lot of other things have happened, as far as the story goes, she's sure in her ability, and even she can sense the what happens with Miles. And there's this beautiful moment in the movie where I I will always hold this up as the crowning achievement. So during the animation process, and this is both story and technical, every character from all of the different places that Spider-Man had come to that universe from were animated at different frame rates. Some were done in a traditional anime, uh, you know, 60 or higher FPS. Uh, the Noir one was actually done at 30 FPS. Uh, Miles was done at 30 FPS as well, which makes him feel very disjointed, very unsmooth, uh, very rough. There, there, is no, there is no fluidity to his motion until there is. And then you can see everything click into place as this coming-of-age story, coming to terms with everything that he has to deal with, and falling into the role of being Spider-Man, literally falling into it. The animation sequence goes from 30 to 45 to 60. And this is what happened in the comics over a series of years. Uh, 
Miles trying to find his way, trying to live up to the standard of the the Spider-Man that came before him in the Ultimate Comics, uh, trying to follow in the footsteps of this great hero that not only saved the city, but saved the world, right? Who he later finds out was just a kid like him. There's, it is a perfect encapsulation of that while still finding his place among all of the other universe's Spider-Man. And it is a perfect distillation of, at this point, a decade's worth of comics into what is essentially a hour and a half movie. And I will always hold that up as what is a gold standard for adaptation. It hits every major story beat, does it with love, care, and tension, and has the soul of the character. And that sounds like a really weird thing to say, but, and Matt, I think will agree with me, in comic books in particular, characters have a certain feel to them. And when they, they hit their stride, whether you like a particular version of it or not, like Thor will always feel like Thor, right? Uh, Valkyrie, Valkyrie will always feel like Valkyrie if they're done right, if they're they're true to their character. Same thing with Spider-Man, same thing with Storm, and same thing with Miles. Let me put it this way. I think this is an interesting way to put it, so I'm going to go with, it, with this. You can see however many movies you want where Batman has machine guns on his plane uh, or on his tank car or what have you. You can go back and read the original comics where Batman is shooting people, and yet you will never truly accept Batman killing people. You just know that's not what he does. There's just that kind of thing. Characters build up a corpus, uh, and they have lots and lots of appearances, but it's like it doesn't really matter. I think it was Grant Morrison who once said this, and they they made the point that you could boil Superman down to like uh, like an eight word for like an eight word you know incantation almost. Like last sun, doomed planet, kindly couple, superhero. Like you could just do it. You could just drop these of these beats, and that's Superman. And you know who the character is. Um, Spider Man is definitely one of those characters uh, to a degree. Like it's harder to do it as like a rhyming couplet th- that way. But you could definitely. There's certain elements that are just inherent to the character. Un- sometimes the writers tend to go a little heavy in a direction, like. I don't feel like Spider-Man's life has to be constant misery and torturous suffering. I feel like when they start getting that bad, they need to dial it back. He's supposed to have problems. He's not supposed to be constantly crushed by his life. Mm -hmm. Like he can have a bad thing happens and he has to deal with it. It shouldn't just be okay for the next 24 issues. We're not going to know if he's a clone or not. And he's going to go insane. And his, his wife is going to like, you know, have to mourn his, his madness and their baby will be kidnapped by Norman Osborn. It's just like, Dude, dude, dial it back. It's not a soap opera. Um, but Miles at this point is sort of oddly enough, Miles is way more stable yeah. as a person than Peter Parker. Because Miles grew up with his mom and dad. Uh at this point, they, they, I think they're both alive in the comics. I think originally his his dad wasn't. Originally his dad was not alive in the comics. Uh in the video game spoilers, but the game's been out since 2018. Um, he's there when his dad dies in the comics currently and in the um, Spider-Verse. They're both alive. Yeah. And Miles's relationship with his parents is one of the it's really one of the nice touchstones of the it's, character. It's the healthiest relationship between a hero and their parents that I think Marvel has ever had. Minus, okay. Kamala, minus Kamala Khan. Yeah. You said Marvel. That's good because I was going to go Jamie Reyes, man. Yeah. No, no, hey. Yeah. But I think that's um, we're talking a lot about comics. I do think we should move on to something that isn't comics. Well, there is one last thing I do want to point out, oh, too. Go ahead. Go ahead with Miles. When we're talking about adaptation, it had nothing to do with Miles. It actually has nothing to do with uh, with uh, Marvel at all. 
it's an adaptation that I think uh, a lot of folks that are in a particular age group that listen to our podcast would be very familiar with. And this is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon from the 80s. When that released, I don't think any of us at the time knew, at least in my generation, and maybe not a little bit older, unless they were super into comics at the time, knew that that was based off of a comic book series. I did, but I, I, could t- I had a very distinct reason for knowing it. Uh, which which most people wouldn't have in that I went to a convention. I think I was like 15 and uh, maybe I was 20. I'm trying to remember. And I can't remember how old I was, but uh, one of the two creators was there because there was a palladium role playing -playing game. game, Yep. Adapting the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And that's how I found out about it. Now, the reason I bring, the reason I bring it up is because they are a franchise that has reinvented itself basically for every generation. And for whether it was the the comic books, which were dark and gritty and were also sort of taking the piss out of Marvel at the time yeah. uh, because they were specifically doing things like they fought a group called the Foot Clan, which was their take on the hand from uh, Daredevil and the, the whole secret society and ninjas. They killed. If you go back, Sorry. yeah. If you go, if you go back and look at the first original issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Daredevil's in it. Yes. They don't actually say that, but there's a blind kid who knocks a guy out of the way and gets hit with goop, and the goop hits also hits the turtles. Yes. Uh, and a rat, I believe. And a rat. Splinter, Splinter was originally an actual rat. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, Joe, Joe's right about that. They were definitely, it was one of those indie comics that was definitely aware of what it was doing. Sarcasm. Was- yeah, but so it went from that sort of dark and in, in very real and, and visceral, like to the point where like the turtles would kill people. They didn't have different colored mm-hmm. uh, bandanas to identify each other. It was black and white with uh, accents of red and it was either blood or their bandanas. And that was it. Um, mm-hmm. They weren't Michelangelo wasn't the fun loving one. Raphael wasn't the gruff one. They were very much like, well, I'll, stoic I'll argue ninjas. with you about Raphael. Well, Raphael was always the gruff one because they were all the gruff. Who, yeah. Yeah. But no, but like the, like Leonardo was the, the team leader type yes. and Raphael was the Wolverine pastiche. Essentially. He was the one on the edge who might break at any moment, but the other two basically had no personality. Yeah. And then you, and then you get to the eighties the cartoon where they develop a very PG 13 at most pushing it. Maybe uh, they're not swearing. They're not drinking beer. Um, they're not, you know, ogling women like they did in the comics. Cause they did these making things. Casey, in the comics. Yeah. Making Casey Jones work in the, in the cartoon was a miracle. Yes. Cause that dude, <laughs> dude was not caught. He was not TG 13 in the comics. And then it went from, and, and, I, and I'm, but it worked really well, and the cartoons are really well loved. And then a completely different aspect of it is when you get to the live action movies in the 90s, late 80s, Which early are, 90s. Oddly enough, at least the first one is actually pretty good. Yep. And it is much closer to the comics. It is. It keeps a few elements from the, the, the uh, animated series. But on the whole, I, I think Splinter is a rat in that movie as well. He's yes. not a mutated person. He's just, he is the rat who was the, the ninja's pet. Like yes, they the, actually the ninja that master's in. pet. Yep. Yeah. It's actually interesting that you point this out because in terms of fidelity to the original source, the movies are much better adaptations than the cartoons. And then there's the reinvention. In, just, in that, just in that case. But in the case of the cartoon, it's much more successful in that it got people to like the Ninja Turtles. They'd never heard of it. Absolutely. And it created and it, it continues to reinvent itself in 2003 when a new series of movies released. Um, and I'm not just talking about like you can love or hate the Michael Bay movies. 
but they're actually not far off from the original source as well. But they do it with a reinvention for the sensibilities of the viewership at the time that made it relevant. I know kids that saw those movies that were the target demographic, that that was their introduction to it and, you know, are still into it now as they're a little bit older. And it reinvented itself for the animated series that released on Nickelodeon in the late uh, 2000s. Um, the zero zeros, not like because we're yeah. from the two thousands, um, and they continue to do so. They it is. And they had like three series since then, and they've they all have. been slight changes. Yeah, and they've all been changes. They have all been updates, and they Didn't all they, work. Oh, they also did a crossover. They did. They've done like crossovers between various of the comic series. I mean, well, and, I was actually going to bring that back. <laughs> You're hitting yeah. on something, yeah. Because not only did those changes happen on on the live, like the cartoons and TV shows and movies those changes started happening in the comic books where like you have crossovers with you have Ninja Turtles and Batman. Like that is just wild. Um, But they do a really good job of adapting those, the current comic books to the current viewership. It is a franchise that adapts and tells its story. And the story is always almost ultimately the same. It's always the same at the core. It's still the soul of like, it's, these outcasts from society trying to keep the world from collapsing in on itself, essentially. Right. That's the trope. It works really well. I'm going to shut up and let Matt talk now. No, I'm just, uh, only thing I was going to say is one of the other things they've done, if we're talking about adaptation of lore and story in a, in something, uh, the, I believe it was, I know it was in the, the, one of the later animated series that this happened. There's a character by Stan Sakai named Yusaji Yujimbo. I know Joe knows who it is because Joe is playing him uh, in our D and D game. <laughs> Uh, I actually really like I like the Sakai Yojimbo stories. Sakai actually worked with Eastman and Laird, and they did a crossover Mm -hmm. between like, and this is much later, so it's not it's not the early Eastman Laird. It's much later Eastman Laird where they're it's more nuanced, and they actually borrowed stuff from the cartoon. Not not a ton of it, but they did borrow some of the stuff. They have a crossover with Yusaji. The the turtles go back in time to ancient feudal Japan because of course they do. Uh, and they meet Asaji Ujimbo, who is just there, and there's no explanation as to why everybody in Japan is an animal. Like that Sakai does not play that. He does not care to explain it. It just it is what is it what it is. But they end up in that place and nobody's like surprised to see a bunch of turtles being ninjas because, you know, yeah, of course. The they, ninja, ninjas come from every kind of animal. They just look at him like, Oh, you don't have water in your head, you're not a kappa, we're good. Okay, let's continue. Yeah. yeah. So there's like it's it's one of the best Usagi Yojimbo adaptations you're going to find because there are not many of them. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame because Usagi Yojimbo is one of the best comic books put out uh, in the 20th and 21st century. Um, quite frankly, it deserves an adaptation. But yeah, it's just fascinating to see how the, the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles of all things have basically treaded the line on adaptations. I straight up, I didn't like the original cartoon when it came out, True. but I was too old for it. Yeah, I, mean, exactly. I was straight up. I was too old for it. I understood that it's much the same reason that I never get, I don't get mad at, um, and this is actually, this is an adaptation discussion all its own, but I don't get mad at the power Rangers for being something I didn't like when I was, when they were first coming out because they were an adaptation of the Sentai series from Japan. I'd seen some of the Sentai series already. And I, I was like, yeah, this is, they just, they just babied it down. But it's like, that's how they got people to watch them. You couldn't just bring the complexity of a Sentai series into American like you know homes and say hey here you go uh, it just it wouldn't fly it's a di- it's a different world yeah and the the thing that I think I, I really want to point out though as we're talking about this is at least in this particular section there are a lot of of there's a lot of folks that maybe discount how well certain things translate 
or will you know laugh it off as oh you can never make a book into a movie or the it's never quite the same and there's truth to that but it allows you to do things that you couldn't necessarily do in a 24 page comic or uh even it would take 5 pages to describe like the subtle body movements that are happening in a scene in a book um, yeah, they are different media. They're different, different media. Different media require you. It's called adaptation for a reason. You are adapting it because the, the media expresses the information that you're taking in to understand the story differently. Uh, and that goes for that even just goes from TV to movies because TV is like TV is more episodic and more long form. Movies you get a couple hours and you're expected to be done by the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there's if we're going to talk about adaptations here. We kind of have to talk about Lord of the Rings now. Yes. Uh, there's a Lord of the Rings series coming out. I haven't seen anything for it, so I can't tell you how good or bad it's going to be. But I do know that the Lord of the Rings movies, and I'm not talking the Hobbit movies. We could get there, but the Lord of the Rings movies do an almost unthinkable thing in that they manage to wrestle a concise, coherent narrative. And I say concise only in the in the terms of you know presentable, not saying it's short but a concise, coherent narrative out of books that spend entire chapters explaining the kind of, of weed that, that hobbits smoke. There's a whole chapter on pipe weed in, in the Lord of the Rings books. A whole mm-hmm. chapter. It, it makes Moby Dick's harpoon chapters seem like quaint. It's like he just isn't going to stop talking about this. I remember like almost losing my mind. And then there's Tom Bombadil. The fact that Tom Bombadil is not in the Lord of the Rings movies is an incredible joy and gift to us. You do not understand. I mean, even if you like Tom Bombadil, he's anti-narrative. Mm-hmm. He's literally narrative kryptonite. So, yes, the Lord of the Rings movies do not faithfully adapt to the Lord of the Rings books because each movie would be four hours long, if not longer. And there's there's a limit to what you can get into a movie and get people to sit through. I think the Lord of the Rings films are pretty close to as long as you can really get people to sit through a movie. In my opinion, but I think that they work as adaptations because there's an understanding of what's essential. What do we have to show people for this story to make sense? And what can we let them infer? Now, that's not to say that every media or every topic or or subject makes that transition well, right? There are plenty out there that fall short of that bar. Um, what would you say is, do you have one that really comes to mind when you think of this didn't do anything even remotely close to the source material, but also didn't do anything to elevate itself and make itself different in any meaningful way. I'm sure you have at least one. (laughs) I've got one. Um, I actually have quite few, but the one I think of the most when you talk about these things is actually the Dungeons and Dragons movie from the like, like late nineties or the original one with Jeremy Irons. Yeah. Jeremy Irons. Yeah. Um, not that the sequels to it were good either, because it got two sequels, both I think direct-to-video type things. But the first one is, I remember going into a movie theater, and here's the thing: uh, around the time of that that movie came out, I believe the Josie and the Pussycats movie also came out, like yes. not too far away from it. For my birthday, a friend of mine at the time uh, decided, "Hey, we'll go do a double thing. We'll go see both of these films." I'm like, uh, "Okay." not really into Josie and the Pussycats. He's like, come on, it's Rachel Lee Cook. It'll be fine. I'm like, well, okay, yeah, she's pretty fine. I'll go. And that movie wasn't great. It wasn't awful, but it definitely didn't feel like anything to do with Josie and the Pussycats. It could have been like, it could have just been any, any story with, with the, the, the actors like Tara Reid and Rachel Lee Cook. It didn't, it didn't bring anything to it that made you say, this is in the same universe as the Archie comics. You know what I mean? 
it was just flat. It was nothing. Then we was like, oh yeah, that 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 wasn't that great, but it wasn't terrible. But now we're gonna get to see Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm excited. I like Dungeons and Dragons. I'm excited. And then I get in there, and the 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 hour and forty minutes or however long it was goes by, and the lights come up and the movie is over, and literally the entire audience is just sitting there. Like the credits have gone by and nobody got up because everybody can't believe what they just saw. And I heard in the back one one voice and I couldn't tell you man woman couldn't tell you but one voice yelling that beholder was bleep <laughs> and then everyone just started talking about like can you believe the what was with the dragons the dragons look right and I'm just sitting there going dude that was that was quite possibly the worst movie I've ever seen he goes worse than battlefield earth and I'm like okay okay let's not go crazy but it's really bad um and yeah I think I'm going to say that dungeons and dragons movie it is just nothing about it you knowing knowing something about Dungeons and Dragons actually makes it harder to understand that movie. Like yeah. if you go in completely blind, then you at least you don't know what's going on, but you, you know, of course you don't know what's going on. But then if you do know what's going on, you don't know what's going on. It actually gets harder to understand the plot. Um to this day, I think of that movie when I think of movies that just it's like this movie wants so badly to be Star Wars in a fantasy setting and somebody pointed out that movie was made by New Line Cinema. Yeah. Which also made the Lord of the Rings movies. Mm-hmm. I think the same year. Like yep. they came out in the same year. And it's like one of these two is not like the other. So yeah, that, that's mine. What's yours, man? Uh, I mean, there's a couple that really stick out as far as like ones that I would have not really enjoyed. Uh, or, or The Assassin's Creed movie? That's up there. Oh, boy. Um, But honestly, sticking with the comic book theme, there are a couple that I felt fell short of understanding what the character was or, or characters were uh, one is going to be 2004's wonderful movie Catwoman. Um, and it had all the right pieces, but it was one of those things where it just, it failed to understand who the core of the character was and the movie itself. It wasn't well shot. It used a lot of early 2000 CG and weird camera editing uh, that was not very good and didn't really, uh, do very well as far as that goes. Uh, it just failed to sort of do anything extraordinary, even if it didn't follow the source material. Uh, for lack of a better term, it just fell short. Um, I could go with the Fantastic Four movies, which have very little in redeeming qualities for me, aside from a couple brief moments here and there, because again, it didn't really capture the core of the, the, the sort of the concept of the characters of the story. Depending on which one you're talking about, I would make an argument for uh, Michael Chiklis as Ben Grimm. I would, I would agree in that he was like the bright spot. Um, he was the guy who I think read the comics and said, Oh, this guy's a tortured person who hates himself. Yeah, I can do that. Yep. I've done that before. Sure. Yeah. I did the shield. Yeah. All right, fine. But um, Chris Pine is not Chris Pine. Uh, Chris Evans. Chris Evans is is particularly terrible in these movies. Yep. And okay. I don't think that's his fault. It's not. I don't, I don't think it is either. I don't either. think he's doing a bad I don't think he's doing a bad job of of taking the script they put in front of him. I just think the script they put in front of him was like on birdcage lining. Like it was literally they put it in a birdcage and the bird crapped on it and then they're like, "Okay, here's our script." Because yeah. Well, it was um, also during a time where it was like they were going through a whole bunch of rewrites. It was they were trying yeah. to push movies out so that they didn't lose rights to the franchises. There's a lot of stuff that was going on that made them not work really, really well. Um, but probably, I think the biggest disappointment, and and this is something that I know somebody is going to have a gas moment. I don't like Stephen King books, never have, with the exception of some of the Dark Tower. 
I thought that some of it was really good. There were some interesting concepts in it, and I enjoyed it for the most part. Then the movie came out in 2017. And the problem is they tried to condense a lot of information. Yeah, all I think that it didn't it try to almost adapt every book it in tried the Dark to, Tower series. It tried to take every book in the Dark Tower series and make it into a movie. Now, this was originally something that was scheduled to be a TV series, mind you, with Idris Elba. This was supposed to be a TV series that was supposed to span multiple seasons to get everything in the books. But then they decided, F it, we're just going to do a movie and try to cram everything in. And it was one of the most nonsensical cinematic experiences I've ever had. I wasn't even yeah. mad at it. I was just confused. I, I'm going to say this about that movie. Um, I, I didn't hate it, and I wasn't necessarily confused by it, but it felt like, I'm sorry, you put Idris Elba in your movie, and he doesn't do anything for two hours? Mm-hmm. Idris Elba? Idris Elba can smolder his way through a scene by being in the background just looking at you, and you'd be like, oh my god, and and you get nothing? Um, it was unbelievable. Idris Elba was better in Hobbs and Shaw, which is not a good movie, <laughs> but at least he was, he got to, you know, Idris Elba's appearance in Star Trek Beyond actually rocks. It's really great. I would agree. Um, in that movie, in the Dark Tower, he's just there, and, and they're all just there. And that's it, it feels like. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you on that. And there's a lot of like a lot of the video game movie adaptations are uh, tend to fall into that category as well, especially when you're talking about like Uwe Boll, uh, in the name of the king, Dungeon Siege. Oh man, that movie doesn't even know what Dungeon Siege is. It has no idea what it is. It had no intention of ever being a video game movie. It just happened to get slapped on there. And like I legitimately feel bad for the actors in that film because you could tell they were trying their hardest. But like when Jason Statham can't like single-handedly barrel through that movie uh, and make it bearable, and he's done some really questionable movies that have become enjoyable specifically because of him. Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs and Shaw. Um, there's there's a problem, and it was again. It's it's where production in the the spectacle of it is just there for the production and spectacle of it. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't harken back to the original. It doesn't have that soul of the original, but it doesn't do anything different and new. It doesn't pull a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and reinvent itself. If we're going to talk about Yui Ball movies, um, and there's a lot of really bad Yui Ball movies. Yes, Blood Rain. Blood Rain. Blood Rain actually has a cast where you think, this this could actually be good. Ben Kingsley's in this. Uh, um, the girl from the Fast and Furious movies. And she was also in Avatar. She's actually an actress. Michelle Rodriguez. Yep. Michelle Rodriguez is in this. Um, Tom Sizemore is in this. Uh, and and once you actually start watching it, you're like, oh, oh my god, oh no, oh. oh ben yeah, Kingsley. Michael Matt. Michael Madsen. Michelle Rodriguez. Madsen. Ben Kingsley. Yeah. Matthew Davis. Uh, like Udo Kier. There, there is Billy yeah, Udo Zane. Kier. Yeah, Udo Kier's in here. Billy Zane. Billy Zane. Me- yeah. Meatloaf. Meatloaf's in this movie. Yes, and Meatloaf scenes are too not to be believed. It's a great movie to chip to cut up into bite-sized chunks to put on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 I the, many of the performances are quite watchable. Ben Kingsley is. It, it's like if you talk about we talked about the Dungeons and Dragons movie with Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons is clearly there because he needs to to put some like refurb on a houseboat or something like that. But he's at least playing it up. He's like he's going super camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, every scene he's in, if you had one of those scouters from Dragon Ball Z, it'd be like over 9,000 because he's just he's nuts. He's like taking it as hard as he can. Ben Kingsley shows up, says his lines like this. Kill her. Bring me the thing. I'm done now. 
and then he leaves. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't. I think he spent like 15 minutes on that set, if that. Yeah, he sat down in a chair wearing his outfit, did all of his lines, got in a sword fight that doesn't make any sense, and then walked out. I think he probably came in in his own clothes. Like he was probably just dressed like that that day for whatever reason. That's how little inflection he puts he, in it. And I don't blame him, but it's like nobody in this movie wants to be in this movie. I mean, and there's another one that falls that in that category as well, too. Alone in the Dark. Oh, my God. Alone in the Dark. So Alone in the Dark is a beloved horror franchise game that when it was created, when it first hit, uh, to mass appeal. If you've never you've never played it, it is one of the first games that actually mess with you as a player yeah. by doing things like convincing you your cartridge uh, just completely corrupted your memory card or messing with your controls or all sorts of, of things. And it was a, a psychological horror game on multiple levels, and it's very well-beloved and received. Uwe Boll yeah. got this and landed Christian Slater and Tara Reid as the lead roles, which in 2005, both of these movies come out in 2005, by the way, um, would like that's a huge pull. And you're you forgetting think, the, the actual star of the movie. Uh, which one? The guy from Blade. Oh, uh, not, Steven, not Wesley Steve, Steven Dorf. Steven Dorf. Steven Dorf yeah. is the star of this movie, and I'll explain why in a little bit. But so you they took this you know, basically what was supposed to be a psychological horror thriller and turned it into the most bland action paranormal movie that has ever existed. Where I remember there is a scene where like literally Tara Reed's got a like 357 Magnum. Christian Slater's got like a, a, a M16 and they're firing at the ghost. And it's like, what? What is going on here? They're shooting into the. The thing is, the shooting into Alone the, in the darkness dark had like light gun r- moments in it, and it's very much them doing a light gun moment, and it's terrible. But I remember when I first saw it, um, my wife and I saw it together, and she made the point that Stephen Dorff in this movie is attempting to out Christian Slater, Christian, Christian Slater, Slater, yeah, in his own movie, and the worst part is that he does it because Christian Slater is actually trying, like. I will say that Christian Slater is attempting to perform in this movie. You've seen Mr. Robot. You know he can still act. Mm-hmm. He was trying to act. He was trying to like elevate this thing. He's like, yeah, it's it's not great. Yeah, it's a German tax dodge. But, I mean, I'm in it. It's my face and my name. I have to try. Steven Dorff walked on set and said, I'm going to take a big steaming dump all over this movie. And then they're going to pay me and I'm going to leave. And that's exactly what he what? did. That is the only entertaining thing about the movie. In, in in the internet, like we talk about like how bad these movies are, but the weird thing is, is there's actually a cinematic uh, presence or, or precedent for this uh, in like the late 70s, mid 70s, late 70s, and definitely throughout the 80s. Uh, there was this large swath of what was called Italian exploitation cinema, and it was movies that were ripoffs of other more successful franchises uh, mm-hmm. But like done in such a way to try to make them something their own, um, but always falling short or always like not having the funding for it uh, or not, you know, basically being able to film as as, as much as you want. And Uwe Boll really, I forgot who the, the main uh, Italian exploitation cinema uh, director writer was at the time, but like his fever pitch paced of putting out movies because he put out a lot of movies in a very short period of time from like 2001 to like 2007. 
Like it was just movie after movie after movie. Like there would be four or five Uwe Boll movies in the theaters at a time. When he wasn't challenging critics of the films to get into boxing matches with him and then picking ones that were not particularly good at boxing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he was doing. But the interesting thing is like the reason that we all remember them as being terrible isn't necessarily because a video game name was associated with it. It's because they were just bad movies. They didn't yeah, the, have anything, right? They, they, they are the perfect example for a bad adaptation because they never attempt to make an adaptation. Exactly. At best, they smear the name of something that you actually loved on them. You're like, well, yeah, I saw his other movie. And it was terrible, but this is Blood Rain. How can you mess that up two hours later? Oh, oh, that's how you mess that up. Uh, whether or not you like or hate, I'm going to use an example of films that are pretty polarizing. Let's say you hated Batman v Superman. You just did not like this movie. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Um, and that's a judgment that everyone gets to make. But imagine if when you went in to see Batman v Superman, uh, Batman was a chain smoking reporter named Dick Girth, and Superman was some guy from Toledo. That's what the Huey Ball adaptations feel like. Like even when he gets the names right, it's like amazing how little they have to do with the actual storylines of the video games. Joe mentioned the dungeon siege movie, which has nothing to do with dungeon siege. Um, Blood Rain at least gets the name of the main character right, but her entire origin is completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's the thing. As adaptations, they fail the intending to make an adaptation benchmark. They just don't hit it. They, they don't even try to hit it. But it's a little unfair to talk about those as bad adaptations simply because they're they're just bad movies in general. In terms of like movies that are successful and even liked that are not great adaptations, I think the original Tomb Raider would be a good example. I would agree. Or possibly the Alicia Vikander Tomb Raider, which I actually liked because Alicia Vikander is extremely watchable and a good actress. And I'd even say it was a good adaptation of the video game it was adapting because it was adapting, adapting the, the modern series of Tomb Raider games. But I think a lot of people didn't like it as much because of that, because that wasn't what they expected. The thing Joe talked about with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is people it's not a case of giving people a faithful adaptation to the original source material it's a case of adapting that source material to what audiences are going to want to see and that doesn't always work i think going back to warcraft i think that was part of the problem a lot of people don't have not played the original warcraft games mm-hmm. they don't they don't really care about a lot, a lot of people warcraft we talked about this before and we talked about this on on multiple of the podcasts how many people didn't get exposure until of World of Warcraft until one, it started becoming like a mainstream media push uh, that maybe people picked up later on or and then it wasn't until like Cataclysm or Wrath of Lich King or Mrs. Pandaria um, that they really like picked up the game. So and maybe they don't know everything that came beforehand. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, let's be clear. The original Warcraft games, the first two RTS games came out in like the nineties and like, I think in one case early in the nineties, like, you know, yeah. 94. Yeah. So, 90. yeah. So, so they weren't, the game wasn't the, the game's story wasn't the same. And a lot of the stuff that you saw in the Warcraft movie was attempting to knit together a lot of really disparate sources when they would have been better served quite possibly just straight up skipping to Warcraft three or straight up just, completely just holding the core of the characters and just scrapping everything and starting from scratch. Maybe. I mean, they kind of did do that to a degree. They tried. Um, I will say that the final fight in Warcraft is still one. I love watching um, the, the casting for the, the actor to play uh, Anduin Lothar 
was inspired. Travis Fimmel from the Vikings movies. Yeah, that that's a good casting. He did he did a great job. But the movie was just I feel like it was hampered by I remember like one review I read from somebody who actually played World of Warcraft pretty intensively at the time was that, you know, I got all the points he was I got all the oh I get that reference. I get that reference, but I don't need to get this many references. And if you don't know anything about Warcraft, you're not going to get these references. Mm-hmm. It's not bad in the way that I, I mentioned before that knowing something about Dungeons and Dragons made the Dungeons and Dragons movie worse. That's not the case for Warcraft. Warcraft, knowing something about Warcraft didn't make Warcraft worse, but not knowing it makes the Warcraft movie almost impossible to follow. And if it is, if you can follow it, nothing in it is going to surprise you. Um, Lane, you know, Medivh, yeah, that's what we thought was going to happen. I mean, it's not exactly what we thought was going to happen, but it's, you know, I'm not shocked by what I just saw. Um, the bit with uh, Lane Rin, not surprising. You know, pretty much knew that was going to happen. The end with Gul'dan becoming a steroid monster, that that was surprising. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, there's just not... You talked before about something, you know, elevating the, the original. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like Warcraft manages that. I would tend to agree. And that's not to say that again, and that's not to say that it's a bad movie. No, no, I it, actually still watch it. I, like I said, I was watching it recently. And there are plenty of movies that people would consider bad that I really enjoy, like uh, for, for various reasons, like the Jonah Hex movie. By no stretch of the imagination is it a good movie, but I enjoy it. Um, I'll give the Jonah Hex movie credit for one thing. It gets the character right. Yeah. And that Brolin does a good job playing him. Yes. Because he understands this man is not likable. Mm-hmm. You should not like Jonah Hex. You, you absolutely should not. You might respect him, but you're never going to like him because he's he's a very unlikable person. And I think that he he nailed that. Brolin's good at playing those kind of characters. And, and the uh, the idea is mostly that I'm trying to convey is like just because we or, or what, whether you like a movie or not is a personal opinion. It it doesn't really matter, but it can be an objectively bad movie that you still enjoy. Mm-hmm. But it could also be a great adaptation that is a ter- objectively terrible movie. These are yes, not mutually or, exclusive things, right? Or it can be a, a great adaptation, but it's not an adaptation of the story that people understand of the character is. Another, so, good, another good example that I think is kind of in the middle ground there is Sin City. The Sin City comics are like, they are very dark and grim and brutal. And the movie is absolutely very much that, but it's toned down actually quite a bit from the way the comics are Mm -hmm. and it's some people will refer to it as like a great movie some people will refer to it as a terrible movie it's a very polarizing thing but we can at least say that it was a i personally think that it was a good adaptation because it kept the core of the characters in the stories that it was telling and still conveyed that same atmosphere and feeling yeah i I think it's fair to say it is a it is a adaptation that understands the source material Right. Um, partially because, you know, uh, for la- for better or worse, uh, Miller was all over the film. Yes. So, yeah. But then you look at, it's actually interesting because you can do this with Miller movies. Uh, you can then go to 300 and say 300 is a, a decent adaptation of the source material. But how many people know that 300 is an adaptation? Yeah. And it's not a, it's not a tremendously great movie in my opinion. It's watchable, but I mean, it's, it's my God. Is it like, if you know anything about actual Greek history, that movie will just, it'll make your brain hurt. Look, all the stuff they do in that movie that is not right. Um, there's a great takedown of this of 300's um, presentation of Leonidas. And, you know, Leonidas would have gone to the Agoge, but they wouldn't have done all this stuff because it's just not what they did. Uh, 
but but again i'd say a decent adaptation into a not particularly great movie then there's the spirit which miller didn't write the Mm -hmm. original comics there will eisner but miller is heavily involved in the adaptation of them i believe he wrote the screenplay and he even co-directed i believe the spirit yeah the spirit is an absolutely god-awful adaptation and a very bad movie but the reason it's a bad movie has nothing to do with how bad the adaptation is it's just nobody in this movie cares slightly um and i don't blame them because there's lines like my city she's there for me every night she's it's like dude you you are getting to the point where you are stalking the city like i think there should be a restraining order against you if you read the original spirit comics that's not there correct there's there are problems with the spirit as an original comic series um uh there's there's some serious racism in that absolutely Um, and Will Eisner, he evolves as a comics creator and eventually writes Contract with God, which is one of the best comic stories ever written. He recognizes his racism and he addresses it, uh, which, you know, if you're going to have racist stuff in your work, it's nice to come along and say, wow, OK, no, that was terrible. I, I didn't understand what I was doing and I'm very sorry. Um and the interesting but, thing about the spirit movie in general, too, is it's another one that was plagued by production and possibly um suffered for it because originally yeah. I, I want to say uh steven leave uh leva leva i can never remember i can't pronounce the name i'm sorry l-e-i-v-a um there was a a leak of the storyboards for the actual movie because the movie originally was supposed to be an animated movie and it was supposed to be not what the live action wound up being but it was supposed to be that sweet spot in between like uh nostalgia and updating for a modern sensibility which when you're doing a pulp era comic or pulp era story in general is always going to be hit and miss because we're further away from the fifties than we were in the 1980s. Right. So like doing a pulp serial, like the rocketeer versus doing the spirit and trying to find that, that spot to make it make sense to a current folks without really just not one, not understanding the material and two, not understanding what a noir is because it has fallen out of the common lexicanum. I think that like the spirit is a perfect example of that. Right. I don't even know. I mean, I mean, I don't, I'm not disputing what you're saying. I just don't know if even that necessarily gets across how woeful it is as an adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, first off, you'd have to actually go read the original spirit comics, which I would which not are, recommend. Yeah. Um, well, they, I think they, they do hold up, but there is some really bad racism. You just have to understand that it is a, it is a problematic story. Yeah, and that later later spirit stuff is better uh, on that front. Eisner became much better about it as well. He, he's it's, he's definitely an artist who understood. Oh wow, I, I have I have gone in a direction I should not have. But just watching that movie, watching it as an adaptation, it it loses everything that made it an Eisner story. The good and the bad and the everything, just everything about it is not what it doesn't it just isn't that story it isn't that character it fails as an adaptation because it fails to even present you with the thing i talked before about how i don't particularly like the moonlight moonlight series but i think it does an amazing job of actually giving you the character mm-hmm. that's not there in the spirit that could be anybody in a, in a mask it's that's not the way the character talked that's not the way the character thought i mean people hate the daredevil movie the original the, one with michael but, yeah. clark duncan and uh, ben affleck yeah, people hate it. I actually thought it was pretty watchable. Same. Duncan's fine. Affleck's fine. It's the not, direct, and the director's not, cut did a better job of, of representing yeah. the characters as well. But at least he was recognizably Matt Murdock. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you knew who that guy was. He's got a quippy relationship with his with his friend Franklin. You know, friend. Oh God, I want to say Franklin. That's Froggy. Not Franklin. Froggy. Thank you, Foggy. Foggy Nelson. He's got the quippy relationship with Foggy. He's got the angst with his his Electra thing. That's all there. It's tweaked and changed, and they they don't do enough with Michael Clark Duncan because man, you got Michael Clark Duncan in your movie as the kingpin. You should be using him more. Uh, but it. It's it's still recognizably Daredevil, and then when you have the Marvel TV series, the Netflix series, it's still recognizably Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Like you look at these characters, and they're completely different, but you recognize them. You know that's that's Foggy, that's Matt, that's Electra when she comes in in season two. That's Karen. She wasn't in the movie, but yeah, that that's recognizably Karen. Uh, D'Onofrio is an amazing kingpin. And he's recognizably the same character that Michael Clark Duncan was playing, even though they're very different. Mm-hmm. And that's going all the way back to, to Joe's talking about Miles Morales. That's the thing that makes Miles Morales' appearances in uh, the Spider-Verse and in the, the Spider-Man games work. He's not the same, but he's recognizable. You know when you see it that he is the character. You don't feel like it's not like, um, to use another example, it's not like the Catwoman movie that Halle Berry did, where she's not playing Selena Kyle, and there's nothing of Selena Kyle in the performance. Mm-hmm. It's not recognizably the same character. It's not just that the story makes no sense and has nothing to do with Catwoman. It's not recognizably her. Like it, it's someone else. Had you, you wanted to make a story with Halle Berry as Catwoman, and you didn't bother to have her play Catwoman. I mean, she she could have done it. You could have just let her play Catwoman and it would have been fine. So, yeah, I definitely feel like there's there's levels to this where there's, there's- a, there is a lot of nuance to it. Right. And we we understand that. And the whole point of this, uh, I believe, from my perspective, is that it, it's hard retelling a story uh, through modern modern lenses. Right. We often think that the evolution of a story stopped when oral tradition was replaced with written record or or in our case, a digital recorded record. But the truth of the matter is, is that if a story isn't evolving to suit the listener sensibility or the watcher sensibilities, it runs the risk of not conveying its core intended purpose or its core value in whatever context it needs to. Right. Like that's, that's sort of the framework of all of this. Like, that's why the Ninja Turtles readapt themselves, but the core is still the same. It's still that irreverent take on what essentially Marvel built, because that's where they are now, even in the IDW comics uh, with Last Ronin and everything else, where it gets a little darker, uh, like it's a lot darker, but it's still like poking jabs at like the super serious Marvel stuff, because that's the core of the characters. That's the core of the story. Uh, when we're talking about like the Warcraft movie, there's still a core there. I, I, there's still a core of that story. Yeah, there's a reason that movie ends with Anduin Lothar uh, cutting down Doomhammer and walking away. Mm-hmm. That is the, the core of the character is he is a badass. Yep. Uh, it's, it's black handy. He cuts down. Black handy. But the core of the character is he is a badass. He is going to be the one to save this kingdom. Even if he doesn't want to be, he's going to do it. Cause that's who he is. And I think Joe's points about modern sensibilities and an adaptation are perfectly valid. And they're worth thinking about. But the other thing to think about, too, is there's also the fact that when you're adapting a piece of media to a different media, that the storytelling conventions are always different. I think one of the reasons that the Watchmen movie failed uh, is not necessarily that it was poorly adapted, but that it didn't take full advantage of the fact that it was a movie. Yeah, I would agree with that, actually. 
and there's scenes where they come close, like the scene with with uh, Bubastis and Doctor Manhattan in in Ozymandias's trap, yes. and then when Ozymandias when Doctor Manhattan comes back and he goes, Adrian, I'm disappointed. That those are good scenes. They're they're well shot, and they 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 come the closest to the the movie saying, Hey, we're a movie. We don't have to spend a lot of time showing you individual panels of something. We can give it to you in a flowing scene. There's a I really feel like the Watchmen film in particular is an example of an adaptation that that misses the forest but gets all the trees. Yeah. Um it, it had, doesn't it had all the substance it, but didn't didn't do anything with it. It didn't bring it together. Like yeah. at the end it feels like okay, nothing happened. Uh but the, a lot of the stuff in it, like any any scene that that uh that uh Oh, bloody heck, Mandelbrot said uh, Rorschach. Any scene that Rorschach is in is usually a good scene just because the actor playing him is doing an amazing job, but they don't necessarily have to be there. And that's, it feels like that that's the, the place when you're doing an adaptation from say a video game or a book or a comic book to a movie or TV, or for that matter, from a TV series to a series of books or whatever you're doing, whenever you're doing an adaptation, you have to use the strengths of the new medium. Not just you know modern sensibilities, but also this is in a different format. The framework it, changes, yeah. Yes, and that's the lens you're seeing it through. An attempt to get every single scene out of a book into a movie is going to end up feeling bloated. And the the Lord of the Rings films is a great example of something where I feel personally, I feel like it still feels a little bloated. I would agree. I think they could but, have done more pruning. Yeah, but it works. Like I, I can still to this day watch those movies. I like them better if I literally just fast forward any time Frodo appears. Yeah. Yep. But that's just because, you know, let's be honest. Um, it's like skipping one half of the two towers books. Yeah. Um, Fro- Frodo is, is an interesting character, but yeah, but I think we're at the point where we need to wrap this up. So I'm going to shut up and let you do that. Yeah. And honestly, it's just something that I think is, is fascinating to think about. And I was actually really happy that Matt suggested this. Um, I'm kind of curious for you at home, do you have something that you feel was a really good adaptation from one media to another? Yeah, do definitely share that with us. guys. Share that with us. Hit us on Twitter. Uh, send it in our Discord server. Is there something that you feel missed the mark? Um, obviously, constructive criticism, and we, we've made the caveat that this is all subjective and personal, but I'm interested to hear what people consider good adaptations and, and bad adaptations and why. Yeah, and I, if, you, if there's a movie that you don't like, but you think it did a good job adapting something, or a movie you really like that you know didn't even bother to adapt something, that's interesting, too. Um, and it can be that for a TV show. It can be that for anything. Um, just thinking, we really want to hear what you think about the idea. Like how, how do adaptations miss the mark? How do they succeed? And what does that success or failure mean? Like, what does it do for you as the, as the person who is taking the media in? Mm -hmm. But I think that's going to do it for us on this week's episode. Thank you very much for joining us. If you have questions for this podcast or any of our podcasts, be sure to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Specify the show it's for. You can also send us show uh, theme ideas if you have something that you are particularly fond of hearing. Uh, or want to hear. You can also send those suggestions and questions to us on the Patreon Q and podcast channel on our Discord server. We tend to look there first as a way of saying thank you to our Patreon supporters. Uh, and if you can't support us on Patreon, we understand. You can also hit us up in the Q and podcast questions section. As a reminder, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to your generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. So thank you very much, folks. We'll see you next week.